Um, hello, everyone. Um, my name is Gregory Udan, and I am the guest host today for the Dance Well podcast. Um, just to give you a little bit of background um, about myself, um, I was a professional modern dancer. Um, primarily, I danced with Heidi Latsky Dance, which is a physically integrated dance company using both disabled and non-disabled dancers in New York City. Um, after that, I went to Teachers College, uh, Columbia University, uh, where I met our guest today, um, Elizabeth Coker. And uh, I ended up getting two master's degrees in motor learning um, and one in applied statistics. Um, much of my, my research um, looks at like the dance science realm, but specifically um, taking an arts for health approach. Um, I also teach and am a Westheimer Fellow for the Dance for Parkinson's program um, through the Mark Morris Dance Center in Brooklyn. Um, without further ado, though, I would like to have um, Elizabeth um, introduce yourself. Thanks, Greg. Uh, you can call me Betsy. I, I you know, <laughs> why resist it at this point? Um, yeah, thank you for having me. And I'm an assistant arts professor at NYU Tisch School of the Arts in the Department of Dance. I teach dance uh, practice, a studio practice, and also movement science in a variety of ways. And as you mentioned, we met at Teachers College where I did my master's and doctorate uh, in motor learning and control. And previous to that, and still I like to consider myself a professional dancer <laughs> uh, and also co-artistic director of the Sean Crane Company. And I'm happy to talk about some of my uh, more recent research today. Great. Thank you, Betsy. I had to like hold off. I was like, Elizabeth or Betsy, right? No, <laughs> um, I, I say yeah. Elizabeth on paper. <laughs> I'm the same way. I'm Gregory on like paper, but like everyone calls me, calls me Greg, you know, so it's, it, it is what it is. Um, we've also, you know, crossed paths prior to Teachers College um, because Heidi and Sean are like best friends and dance together for the Bill T. Jones company. So, you know, um, Betsy and I have uh, a history together, which should should make for an interesting um, podcast today. Um, so the topic uh, that we'll be talking about today is um, looking at like measurement of dance, right? And kind of like outcomes and how do we measure dance? What's what's needed um, to measure dance? Uh, so I was just wondering, like um, Elizabeth or Betsy, if you can just tell us a little bit about your work um, and kind of how your work has manifested and then, you know, maybe take that a little bit into um, how um, measurement affects your, your research. Right. Yeah. So I, I guess broadly, I study two sort of areas. I started off in graduate school doing research in motor imagery. Um, and I think that's always going to be like my, that was my entry into being really passionate about, about the biobehavioral sciences and sort of neurophysiology of, of movement um, through this imagination lens. Um, I feel so passionately about it. It's not something that I've really engaged in research in the last few years. Um, my dissertation work and the work in the years since has focused on balance. And in a variety of ways, I've, I have zeroed in on measurement because of, um, well, sort of, I thought, you know, issues I found with measurement in general. Um, it's something I've thought about a lot. I always, like when I'm at conferences, if I have a poster or a talk or something, I feel like it's always, I'm always in the corner with other measurement people. 
and it's funny because it just seems like the least sexy thing to do in movement science. <laughs> it just sounds so terribly boring. Um, but I really think like it's kind of it is the basis of everything. I mean, I'm, I'm a quantitative researcher, and we can talk about also sort of qualitative, quantitative, and that maybe um, the problems with those dichotomies. But in quantitative research, everything is measurement and in some ways, I think this is like a really maybe overwrought statement, but we only know what we're able to measure. And so if there's flaws or limitations in the ways of measuring, there's flaws and limitations in what we know. Um, and so that's been really, I think, a compelling sort of mission statement <laughs> for me. Um, so the research that I, I do now is mostly uh, focused on developing what my research colleague, Anat Lubetsky, who's an associate professor at NYU Steinhardt in physical therapy, she has this really great way of, of saying it succinctly, which is portable and affordable. <laughs> so I'm going to steal that from her. Um, I spend a lot of time in graduate school managing the 3D motion capture, the gate lab at Columbia. And um, it was so exciting and, and there's just feels like so much power involved in having these really, you know, expensive, like sort of um, exclusive tools at your command. But really what I've done since then has been to look at the limitations, like exclusive means that it excludes. So uh, the more um, recent research I've done has been in developing iPhone applications and also various sensor applications to measure balance so human balance yeah you know similarly i kind of had the same experience working in the you know the 3d motion capture lab but then um transitioning a lot of my work more into wearable sensors but um you know not just because it was exclusive but because it wasn't portable right like mm -hmm. i was doing a lot of work in like the arts and health realm um particularly with people with parkinson's and huntington's disease but you know making them come into a movement science lab, right? Like, you know, especially now with kind of like COVID and everything, right? Like it's, it, there's the transportation involved and then you also have to put the sticky markers on them which can fall off and kind of not be comfortable for a lot of people. So, you know, I, I definitely hear you on, you know, the the need for um, portable and affordable, um, if you if you will. Um, so if you can maybe tell us a little bit more, um, you know, about like what types of balance measures you're using and kind of how you're you're measuring them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the sort of classic lab based measurement of balance has always been the force plate where, you know, you're standing on this um, platform that has four sort of force transducer cells at the corners and it's very, very high resolution way of knowing essentially how you're transferring your weight over your feet. And um, we can tell a lot from those measures. So, you know, you think of center, center of pressure is a sort of classic measure of balance. Um, and, you know, it's interesting, it's based on this idea that the human body is an inverted pendulum. So the, the ankle joint is the fixed point and that the, the vertical body is sort of um, wobbling around that point <laughs> when we balance, which, you know, is not, it, it is, it's a model, right? You're talking, I find this so interesting, this idea of the 3D optic motion capture, which, you know, don't get me wrong, I love. I could spend hours in that lab. <laughs> but where you put the markers 
all of these are models that are, you know, sort of our best way of representing the body. And Greg, I know with your, you know, your expertise in disability studies, particularly in movement in the body, like these models are based on specific kinds of bodies and they are not transferable to most other bodies. <laughs> um, so a similar idea, this like fixed pen, the inverted pendulum idea, we, uh, Anat and I are interested in looking sort of, as we'd say, up the chain of the body during balance. So we know that, you know, where your balance is in this little point in your feet that's sort of wandering around a center. Anat says dancing around a center. I just say it's sort of wobbling around a center point while you're balancing. Um, reflects a lot of things that are going on up the kinetic chain of your body. And so I'm really interested in center of mass, which is a point within the body, a sort of theoretical mathematical point within the body. So I'm not putting a marker on the center of mass because that could be quite invasive, um, <laughs> but we're approximating it. So we do sensor and iPhone based work that attaches the sensor of the iPhone um, to either the lumbar spine or in a study that we're doing now with that's fully remote. So, you know, one of the benefits of this line of research was that I actually kept doing research throughout the pandemic um, in these remote, you know, testing ways, having someone hold the phone against their chest. And then interesting also, if you think up the chain, so the pelvis is a very heavy part of the body. So we imagine it's gonna have a lot of, um, uh, you know, sort of say over the sway of the body, but also the head which is really understudied in balance. Um, but as a dancer, it would make perfect sense as to why you might wanna know what your head is doing when you're balancing. Anybody who's ever studied the bone technique would you know, think it's completely insane that you would like study human stability without understanding where your head is in space. Um, and so, and I think we'll probably talk about this a little bit later, but in the, many of the sort of higher end VR applications in the headset, they actually have inertial sensors as well. So when we're integrating those into a full study, we're able to get measures of not only an approximation of the center of mass, so how your middle is wobbling when you're balancing, and then also how your head, and I say wobbling, but most of the time it's, you know, in, in static stance, it's not really observable to the human eye. So these are some really, um, high resolution indications of like very, very quick neurophysiological adjustments that are happening. Great, thank you. Um, I was just wondering if you can, you know, we're talking about like inertial sensors, um, but some people on the podcast may not know what those are. Like if we can kind of just describe like what those are measuring and how those are used mm -hmm. to measure balance specifically. Yeah, so I specifically look, <clears throat> so classically you can say like a MEMS unit, um, but IMUs, you might see that as well, an inertial measurement unit. Um, I specifically focus on accelerometers. And so, you know, the iPhone is great because it has all of these sensors in it and has since very early versions and they're, they're pretty stable. I just finished up a study looking at the kind of data stability of um, comparing across different iPhone devices and, and iOS. Um, so it's pretty like known quantity but so accelerometers are basically these teeny, teeny little chips that as, um, oh, I wish I could draw it. There's some really great graphics of actually mechanically how these things work, but as they shift in space, um, part of the chip is stable and part of it will move. And like, it measures the lag between those two things. 
So you get a sense of the acceleration of the device itself through space. And it's the reason you can play games on your phone that like, um, well, the one I often show at conferences, just because I feel like a lot of people my age at conferences have played this game, but there's one that like in grad school, you could turn your phone, it would look like um, like a beer mug or something. You could like pour uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> liquid out of it. You could watch it. So the sensors were you know, integrated into the phone it, so that your display that you're looking at would be able to move relative to how you're moving your phone. Um, and I think we take them for granted now because it just we're so used to that kind of immersive environment. But we're using those um, sensors to give us an approximation of how the phone is moving because of the body's movement. Great. Um, and then one other thing, um, you were talking a little bit about um, like, you know, dynamic stability versus static stability. So if you can just kind of like differentiate those for 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 people um, in terms of balance. Hmm. Yeah, sure. So uh, static stance and these are again, like there's always the same problem with dichotomous categories is that they're not nearly as clean as they seem. But I'll start with the with the sort of classic definitions. Static balance is you could think of standing standing as quiet as you possibly can. So we can apply perturbations to that, but your goal is always to keep your center of mass as close to your, like within your base of support as possible, staying close to the, the vertical center line. Dynamic balance is, for example, a classic test of dynamic balance is the sit to stand. So you start sitting in a chair and you sit down and stand up as fast as you can for 30 seconds. That's one of the applications. Um, in dynamic balance, the goal is actually slightly different we want a person to be able to move dynamically through space without falling. So somebody who has, so instead of sort of staying very close to your center line, it's someone who has really, um, you know, functional dynamic balance is actually able to explore far away from their center line without falling, but that, that they can do that, that sort of expands the limits of stability. Um, but the minute that you fall outside your limits of stability, you know, you stumble, you put your foot down, you, you actually fall. That is a sort of failure of dynamic balance. Okay, thank and you. dance uses both of them and they overlap all the time. So. Yeah, I was going to, my next question was actually going to be like, so, you know, since we are talking about like measurement and measurement of balance and like the wearables, like why, why is it important to measure um, balance in dancers? So many reasons. <laughs> I, I guess I would preempt this also by saying I spent years just thinking about measurement and dance. And even to the point where when I, you know, first started in this, like declaring I was a dance scientist, which I don't know if I really say that much anymore, but there was, you know, it's interesting to have that reflected back from both the dance community and from the science community. And it's, the times have changed. So I just want to like mark that, that I feel like the dance community is very interested in science at the moment. And that I didn't really feel that that was true maybe like eight years ago. <laughs> um, I felt that there was just this, you know, kind of leeriness about quantification and this perhaps anxiety that measurement could reduce the art somehow you know oh if you could just measure it and make it all math you know um and i you know I, i've thought a lot about that and i think there's it's really important to say that we're not measuring for the point of understanding the gestalt the aesthetic 
all of it, right? Like that thing exists on its own. Um, but measurement, you know, so for me, and this is a very finite sort of use case, I'm interested in measuring certain movements in dancers and how dancers do um, non-dance movements too, from a clinical standpoint, in order to um, quantify behavior for an individual. And the reason that we would wanna do that is so that we can know how the person, for example, may be affected by injury, how the person is rehabilitating if they are you know, improving in their um, sort of clinical outcomes in a quantitative measurable way. Um, also, are there differences in specific uh, sort of neuro sensory neurologic uh, conditions so that we can learn more about how dancers are actually creating the movements that they are. Um, you know, so there's, I think there's some teaching applications for sure. And I'm happy to go into that more deeply. And I do think I spend most of my time thinking about the, the clinical applications. So injury preventive and rehabilitation. But basically, you know, for me, it's like we have to have an objective measure for an individual that means something so that we can compare it over time. That way we can really know, like, is this um, clinical intervention actually working or is it not? And we don't, I mean, it, the dance world is, I think in this sense, it's clinically very well developed in, in terms of physical therapies for dance. I mean, there's people who've been doing amazing, amazing work for years, but this layer of it is like the wild west. There's just, <laughs> you know, when I teach these classes, there's dancers like, or, you know, students who say things like, well, what is the, what's the reference point for this movement? And I'm, I, I mean, I, I wish I, I just, I don't know. I don't know. I was to say, I don't know over and over again in that class, which is exciting. I think like that's as exciting to be a part of a science world that's like constructing itself as it goes. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, a part of it, cause I always kind of get asked is like, okay, well with the quantification and the measurement, right? Like, well, what is the goal of it? Right. Mm -hmm. But like, you know, what you were talking about, um, you know, with like the teaching applications and like things like that is, that we're not able to actually assess things if we're not able to measure it. Like, you know, if we're looking at, you know, like a teaching application or like a teaching intervention, like you can't effectively measure or like, you know, know if this teaching intervention actually had an effect if we're not actually picking a measurement. But mm -hmm. that also comes to like, are we measuring the right thing? And that's a whole right. other, <laughs> you know, um, a topic of conversation with measurement. but. Um, I was just gonna, you, you kind of opened up like, you know, what are the, the teaching applications? So I would love to hear your kind of view on that. Yeah. And again, this is going to be like a really specific slice of a big pie, but it, it's the little slice where I spend my time. So, <laughs> um, I am very interested in the sensory experience and the sensory uh, sort of implications of movement. Um, and so if we think about, and this has started in my dissertation work and something I'm still working on, balance just happens to be the behavior that, that I'm looking at, right? But for example, you think of the sensory experience of training in a dance studio. So you have um, lots of light and you have mirror reflection of yourself and others. Um, and so just think like visually, 
that experience. And then you think about the visual experience of being on stage where you are lit, but you can't see anything most of the time. <laughs> Lights are focused right on you. Often the floor is difficult to see. Often, interestingly, the floor of a stage is, well, at least it's true at NYU, is a different color than the floor of the state of the studio. So it's a very different visual experience. And, you know, in, in motor learning theory, like that's really weird that you would train entirely in one environment for the purpose of performing in a totally different environment. Like that really goes against everything that we know <laughs> in, in motor learning. And um, so that to me is, we don't even know what effect it's having. I mean, we know sort of like anecdotally, I mean, everybody says every performer is like hates side light, you know, even though the lighting designer is like, oh, it makes you look amazing. But because as soon as they go on, you, you perceive, or at least I perceive that you're just going to fall over. You can't find your balance at all. It's just a completely different situation. Every dancer, I think, knows the feeling of like preparing for three months getting to the stage and feeling like you have to reconstruct yourself <laughs> in a different way. So that to me is like, it doesn't really sound like a teaching application in the sense of what a teacher is saying or doing, yeah. but in the sense of the environment construction, I think it's fundamental. And because we haven't been able to measure dance movements outside of a lab, which is neither a studio nor a stage, then, you know, we actually don't really know what the implications are. Um, so one thing that I'm excited to be able to do is to actually use some of these sensors to measure dancers and how they balance in various visual conditions. Great. Thank you. Um, so, you know, I think I can't go further without asking you to tell us about your iPhone study. So, <laughs> you know, we've kind of like, I think, like hit all the topics to like lead up to it. Um, but if you can kind of give us an overview, you know, what are your goals? What are you hoping to get out of it? How are you, how are you doing it? I've been developing um, balance measurement tool through an iPhone app for a few years. And it's one of the things I had a, a study going over um, the last year of the pandemic, <laughs> not in dancers specifically, but just looking at, you know, does the application, um, which I should be specific. So essentially it's, it is an app that you download on the app store and you it is a trial measure so you can start and stop it you can measure it's made for standing balance essentially so we were testing in standing balance and it, it measures how your uh trunk or the you know approximation of your center of mass is wobbling <laughs> in three dimensions while you're doing various um, balance tasks and we looked at you know they have to be challenging enough like that's the frustrating thing about motor science is if you study tasks that are not challenging enough, you just like get no effect, which is not fun. Um, but then, you know, people get really frustrated when things are really challenging. So you're always <laughs> trying to thread that needle. I mean, we had people standing in their living rooms on Zoom with us, holding their phone on one foot with their eyes closed, counting backwards by three. And, you know, I think they were really excited about the study until they had to do that. And then they were just like, when is this going to be over? But um, but yeah, so we, we tested it out. We've got really nice results. It seems quite sensitive measure, actually. I mean, you think of particularly something that people are using. There's just a lot of control that as a researcher, you have to give up when you're doing studies like this <laughs> because you're trained to control everything. And now all of a sudden, I'm not even the one pressing go on the machine. Like, it's a little bit crazy to me, but 
Um, so maybe that testing was as much for the application as it was for me to just let go. <laughs> um, so we're using that application. Anat and I are running a study now in dancers that happens in a dance studio in a, at our dance building. We use the phone. It's attached to the lumbar spine. So it's, it is actually somewhat closer approximation of center of mass. The dancers are standing on one leg, so they alternate sort of standing on one leg for 30 seconds and then the other one back and forth. And they're also in a VR environment. Um, so Anat, my colleague, has been working with this specific set of VR conditions for a few years, so we're sort of using that as well. Um, and the interesting thing is that in balance studies, we often look at, so the way that we look at the sort of implications of vision, visual availability, are to have your eyes open or your eyes closed. So we know it's much easier to balance with your eyes open than with your eyes closed. Some people, it surprises them. Actually, it's quite difficult to balance with your eyes closed. We really use our vision very strongly when we're balancing. But eyes open versus eyes closed is very, it's like zero to one. The, you know, as scientists, we really like to have gradations in between conditions. So we can really get like a more sort of fine resolution um, understanding of, of what's going on. So to that end, we use VR and we're able to manipulate the visual environment in a more fine-tuned, more highly gradated manner. So we can start to understand at what point does the visual environment become unreliable enough that it affects our balance. And, and you know, maybe there's a certain point at which we can kind of withstand that. We can use our other senses to beef up our performance, but, you know, where is that sort of break point? Um, so, so, yeah, it's fun. It's a lot of, like, portable tech. The answers come in. Um, we do various screenings. We put them in the VR headset. We attach the phone to their waist. Um, and there's another part of it. <laughs> It's just, you know, it's never complicated enough. There's another part of it that we are interested in this, um, and Anat has been interested in this question, that's pretty unstudied, which is what are the sort of contributions of hearing to balance? And it's not something that people really think about or talk about very much. So there is a, there's an audio component too, but I think that's more than enough information. Um, and the reason, sort of the point of it, uh, or at least the big question for me is that we're looking specifically at dancers, you know, these elite pre-professional conservatory dance students who have had ankle injuries in the past or who have not. And, you know, ankle injuries are the most predominant uh, injury in this population. They are rampant. And there's a lot that we do know about them. So like you know, ankle sprains, for example, once you've sprained an ankle, you're much more likely to do it again. And that's something that we see manifest in dancers quite frequently. Um, they are, you know, they rehabilitate well, but we also have some evidence to think that, or to show that athletes and dancers as a sort of subgroup of athletes, they may have this ankle injury that is fully clinically resolved, but they have residual um, balance issues. And there's some, I mean, I can get into that more, <laughs> in even more um, detail, but I can also just leave that there. So, so that's sort of the, the population of, of interest and the real, the reason for being. We, we wanna know, you know, how can we 
measure at such a high level that we can pick up these functional instabilities that exist even after the injury is clinically resolved. Um, can I also ask you um, a little bit about like what, you know, the, the future kind of implications or like the future line of this research um, would be and like how this would benefit um, maybe somebody who isn't a scientist or isn't reading the like, you know, the uh, scientific manuscripts, but like how you kind of expect this to to influence back the, the community. Mm -hmm. I have two. I mean, to me, there's like this one much bigger scientific research question, which is, I think, not what you're asking, <laughs> which is just this big puzzle about how we integrate our vision, our proprioception, because in, in these ankle inver inversion injuries, proprioception is, is likely disrupted. And we think that's probably why they have these sort of ongoing issues. Um, but that's a much bigger question that is applicable to like many arms of science, um, at least movement science. That's sort of the, you know, long-term real big inquiry about just the human body itself that's that's pretty unknown at the moment um but on the more short term <laughs> application end of things um again just going back to measurement as a way of knowing um you know i i would love for this iphone app to have enough rigorous evidence behind it in this specific population that it could be used as a clinical device so for example, if you are a clinician and you have a dancer who's come in, who's rehabilitate, rehabilitating an injury, um, you can measure their balance on specific tasks that we know are, are likely to give us good information about sort of how the body and the brain are connecting. Um, at baseline, every two weeks as they're rehabilitating, you know, onwards after they've been sort of released from PT, and we can really understand for that individual what is the time course of of the injury you know there's a, a sort of post hoc like rehabilitation component but also this is some of the other non-dance studies that we're doing um i'm really motivated by the idea that balances could be used as what we call a vital sign mm. so even in a healthy individual we know that you know you can weigh yourself you can take your temperature you can take your blood pressure and you don't need the fanciest equipment to do it. It might be one hundred one hundredth of a something off, right? <laughs> like, I'm not gonna weigh the same at my house as I do at yours. But within some range of understanding, you know if there's something going on with your body. The temper's a little bit high higher than normal for you, you know something's probably happening. And so it it helps you to sort of gain insight into your own physiologic pro processes. I really feel and I'm very interested in this question of like how balance fits into that. We know that balance is implicated in a wide variety of neurologic disorders in different ways, of course. Um, but all of the research, not all, most of, I'll say most of the research that we have is, um, it's retrospective. You know, it's once someone has a diagnosis, it's once someone's already having symptoms or disruptions to function. And so if we can get some really easy, accessible, but meaningful measures of balance and we can track them, you know, on your phone, right? You don't have to go to the doctor or something. Um, 
or you can, yeah, as you're going to PT anyway, because you're a dancer and you're probably always going to PT, but you can track those things and get some insight into what's happening um, with your brain and body that maybe could unearth some, you know, perhaps warning signs or some things that need to be addressed before they become issues, before they become really clinically um, relevant. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. You know, I've been doing um, some work uh, in collaboration with um, Teachers College, you know, Dr. Lori Quinn's lab, um, the neurorehabilitation lab there, um, where we were doing some work uh, looking at balance measures using wearable sensors in people with Huntington's. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, because with people with Huntington's, um, it's a genetic disorder. So you can actually like test somebody and then see if they have the gene before they start showing symptoms, right? So like we were also kind of looking, you know, to, to hope to show which of these balance measurements collected by these wearable sensors were the most meaningful, right? And which ones would kind of be the most um, clinically relevant. Um, it also makes me think a little bit um, about, uh, so Dr. Reed Ferber, um, who's at the University of Calgary um, up in Canada, has been doing some work using wearable sensors for runners um, to see like if their um, variability gets out of like their normal variability, right? That they would might be more susceptible for an injury, right? And that it could kind of like trigger warn them, um, if you will, um, if they were more potentially at risk for for getting injured or not so that they could slow down or kind of re recalibrate you know um he's been doing that work for for years i don't know that it's in a place where like we're ready to kind of have this like algorithm that will tell us everything and like you know i also don't know that it'll be 100 percent predictive of like whether you would get injured or not because there's so many other things that kind of go go into an injury right that it's more complex than that but you know, I think that this lens of balance is, is super, super, super needed. Um, the yeah, could I just, yeah. I, if I could just jump in, I think, I mean, as, you know, data science people, gait and balance are really alluring because they produce these um, pretty, like, neat <laughs> signals. And they're really ripe for, like, a lot of the sort of data processing innovations that are coming through. And, you know, I... I hesitate to bring up machine learning because I feel like it's just it's just everywhere and sort of maybe unnecessarily everywhere. But this, like if and again, this is what I do. So whatever, what do they say? If you're a nail, everything looks like a hammer or is it the other way around? <laughs> I can never remember what it is. But um, the, if there is a great app like movement science application for machine learning, gate and balance signals are it, yeah. I think. Um, and it is, you know, it's it's interesting, like you say, there's a lot of other components to injury, which is absolutely true. Um, you know, because one of the things that Anat and I think a lot about is is falling in in older populations, and it's a huge problem. It's a major sort of public health issue. Um, and you know, can we predict a first fall? That's like the golden question. That's like the million dollar question at the moment. We know that people who fall are more likely to fall again. We know that there are some of the other components of someone who's at risk of falling, but it really like if you were someone who lives perhaps alone or not, I don't know, but if you, you were living independently and you found that, you know, through an easy measure that you might have an increased risk of falling, probably you're not just going to go on about your life and be like, well, I don't know, nothing I can do about it. You know, like, I think there's some really strong, um, 
other components of, of falling risk that you could address. Like, is do you have carpet, rugs, or hardwood floor? Do you have good lighting? Do you, you know, what is your footwear situation? Um, there's intentional things too, but I, in some, you know, of course, all of these different components interlock. And, you know, if we could start to shed some light on things that we do know um, pose risks, then before it happens, I think we'll just get like a much more robust improvement. Um, this, again, I was not planning on speaking about this, but like here, here we are. <laughs> um, so I did a study that was actually um, just published uh, with Dr. Kevin Wong and Stan Chichuli, um up at the Columbia Medical Center that was in um, people with lower limb loss. Um, and there's actually a balance kind of paradox in people with lower limb loss because people who have better balance in the clinic experience more falls. Right. Mm. Um, and we weren't kind of able to show that with a measure that was sensitive enough. Right. Um, so one of our hypotheses were that if we could actually show um, falls like in relationship to step exposure. Right. That that might mm -hmm. actually show a difference because our hypothesis was, you know, that the um, the people with lower limb loss that were experiencing more falls were also the people that were more active right and mm -hmm. putting themselves in higher fall risk scenarios because maybe they had more balanced confidence um if mm -hmm. you will so we actually um came up with a new metric of like actually looking at their their falls not just as like the single measure of fall but kind of um more in like an epidemiological way of like well, what is their exposure to their daily step count over, you know, we used a one week period of time, but you could use, <coughs> you know, another period of time. Um, and that we felt like this new way to kind of look at falls or this new measurement way to look at falls um, would be able to provide more info, like, you know, into older adults or into other populations, not just um, into people with lower limb loss. It's so interesting. And it's really important to you. I think this is another question about like, we talk about portable and affordable it's really a question of translation like are we translating the laboratory measures to real world outcomes um and there's a lot there it's not just like i'm so focused on the device and the technology that's one part of it but the other part of it is exactly what you're talking about it's actually behavioral so of course the thing that they're doing in the lab is not translatable or not <laughs> as translatable to the thing they're doing in the real world because it's not the same task um so there's you know there's we think a lot about task like this big study that we're starting um to look at more about this app this iphone application is in healthy a you know aging populations and so the task that's maybe the break point of what's challenging for them is gonna be really different than it is for someone with Parkinson's, for example. Um, and that we can't treat those people as a continuum, right? Like this is a very different neurophysiological manifestation. And so we have to really look at it like tailored to a specific population. But I also think, and this is where we go down the nerd hole, which I love, it's not just what they're doing, but and and that you're measuring it quantitatively, but but actually how you're measuring. So one thing you know that's I hope starting to be talked about now in balance is like still I think it's often treated that we look at for you know for lack of a better word like wobbliness. So how much you know like higher accelerations for example, 
we think of being indicative of worse static balance because they are, it's kind of the definition of, of worse static balance. But does that mean that less acceleration means better? And both Anat and I have this suspicion that it doesn't, that you know it's not a linear like more is bad, less is good. There's, I would be very suspicious about, you know, there's something you need to have a kind of a responsiveness while you're standing in terms of your balance. I mean, I'm a New Yorker. So like, I think about being on the subway, <laughs> like if you're just rigid, you're going to fall over. You, you can't respond to the perturbations around you. Um, so another thing that is really important to look at is not just like how much they're wobbling and in what way, but the regularity of it, the very the variability, like you're saying, this running study was sort of variance measure. And then within that, also looking at, you know, we just published a paper looking at um, power spectral density. So like, what are the like what different frequency bands of sway can tell us? And they're quite revealing and much more complicated than just like good versus bad or better versus worse. Yeah. Um, the other thing that this is kind of like looping back to what you were talking about um, before too, but like, you know, I was uh, a dancer and kind of ended up at teacher's college, like being like, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> right. And like, um, I would have never told you that I would have ended up getting a stats degree. Right. Like <laughs> that was kind of my way to like prove that I could like understand quantitative analysis. Right. But also like, the the questions of like well if you analyze things differently right and if you like do different things like it answers different questions and it like can provide different measurements and like you know you're you said i think at the beginning of the podcast that like measurement was like the least sexy right and like <laughs> it is and like so is like analysis and stats like you tell people that like you have a stats degree and they want to run in the other <laughs> unless they're a researcher and then they want to hire you all of the time <laughs> <laughs> that, that that is true um you know and like you know you were talking about like the you know the machine learning kind of aspect of this but like you know, I think that that's also just such a benefit of it, right? Because like, one of the things that, you know, we haven't really hit on that much is the density of data that we are getting from these like wearable sensors, right? Mm -hmm. And the other like thing that we've like hit on, but like haven't necessarily like looked at, um, which I'll ask you a little bit more on in a second, um, is like, you know, the task to the real world kind of like application of like, well, now finally we can get sensors on dancers in a real world studio, right? And like, we can actually ask a lot more questions that we weren't kind of able to ask before. But, you know, for me, coming back to that machine learning is like, well, that's how we're going to analyze this density of data that we have, because, you know, it comes back to that, like, you know, dichotomy of like, is more data better? right but like more data isn't always necessarily better mm -hmm. but like if we're able to track it better and like use better forms and like you know more sensitive forms of analyses right like we'll be able to kind of get that but uh circling back like the analysis <laughs> is also based on how you're measuring it and it comes back to the measurement because you know there's a in statistics you say like um, garbage in, garbage out, right? Like mm -hmm. if the measurement isn't worth anything, like the analysis isn't going to be worth anything. Yeah, I think, I mean, this is really like the meat of it because I, I feel like I need this like tattooed on my forearm or something. I just need like a big poster in front of me all the time that just, it's like the question is key. 
So all of it should follow the question. You shouldn't be using measurements just because they're there or just because we have a cool new tool that like does this thing. Um, and we shouldn't be using statistical analyses just because it's the way that we know how to do it. <laughs> like the question has to be key. Everything has to follow from the question. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think when I look at <clears throat> a lot of the lab based balance measurement stuff there, it, there's, it is, there's pros and cons and there's always pros and cons. I'm not saying that taking measurement out of the lab doesn't lose something. It certainly does, but really the sort of, the question there is like, are, can, is it still meaningful? You know, I, when I start to think about, I was totally, I was totally a resolution snob in grad school and I had all of the tools to my disposal to be, you know, measuring at 360 Hertz. And I sort of would not ever accept anything less than that. I thought that's absurd. You know, why we have these things that do this, why should we? So iPhone is, you know, purports to measure acceleration at hundred Hertz. So we did a study, you know, it actually is quite good. I was quite surprised to be honest that it was pretty stable. I mean, we were measuring for, you know, these trials are really short. So that's another question about how much data you're getting. If you're getting real world sensor data and you're measuring for like 10 hours at a time, that's not a world I've ever lived in. I'm always measuring balance at 30 seconds per shot. Um, but yeah, I mean, we get really good stability at hundred Hertz and I can tell you fact hands down your center of mass is not accelerating faster than 100 hertz <laughs> it's just not we know that like we we've measured it in very very high resolution and it's not and so in that way you know in a real world setting you don't need a 360 hertz measurement device to measure this particular task um there's other perhaps things that maybe you do and that's why you have to be very specific so the question you know, how does balance change over the lifespan, for example? Can we measure that in a lab? I don't think that we can. I think that we think that we have, but I don't think that we can. I, you know, um, this is leading into my, to my last question for you for today, um, is circling back to your task in measurement, right? Because like, is it that like, you know, the task of like standing still right, and balancing with our eyes open on, like, a stable floor, for example, we have measured well in a lab, right? But, mm -hmm. like, how often are we, like, really doing that in real life, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just want to kind of reflect on, like, the history of movement science and dance science, you know, if we will, like, you know, when we started a lot of, like, the movement science studies, right, they were, like, tapping your finger or, like, <laughs> you know, like, a keyboard um, kind of task because that's what we were able to measure at the time. And like, we weren't mm -hmm. kind of able to measure that like real world um, kind of movement. So, you know, looking at it from like a dance perspective, right? Like dance is a super complex movement. And like, you know, like one of the things that I kind of like, you know, think about sometimes is like, well, with a wearable sensor, like I could look at like movement smoothness, right? But like, is that indicative of good dancing because what if the choreography calls mm -hmm. for sharp movement right or or different and there's so many different things that are like task um and genre and like person um specific 
So if you can just kind of, this is like a very broad, open, <laughs> open, complicated question that we're not going to be able to answer within the scope of this and could probably be a whole other conversation. But like, if you could just kind of like give us some reflections on like, you know, the the history of, of measurement within like dance science or movement science and kind of like where you see us um, moving in this wild, wild west, if you were. <laughs> this is such a hard question. And I... <laughs> I know um, it is. I know. <laughs> well, and we've talked about it a lot and it's a hard, it doesn't have an answer, which again, it's like, okay, that's exciting. Um, I guess my way into it is that I've been talking a lot about, I, I see sort of issues. And again, I like to think of like problems and issues from a sort of engineering standpoint. They're, they're like problems and issues are good things because they allow us the opportunity to solve them. Um, whether or not we end up at a solution, I think we're, you know, what we learn along the way blah, blah, whatever, that's a positivistic way of looking at it. Um, but there's sort of two big buckets of issues. One we've talked about a lot today, which is that the issue of um, environment, accessibility of, of measurement, lab versus studio versus stage, like that sort of thing. The other one is much hairier, um, which is that so you and I are motor scientists, right? We're well-trained. We've got all the motor learning behind us and um, we're coming at it. And I think a lot of people who are in this realm are coming at it because there is this increasingly robust base of literature in the motor learning field from this perspective of task and goal. You can't talk about anything in motor learning without talking about the task and the task goal. And that doesn't work for dance. And I think, you know, I teach a motor learning or dance science course. And on the first day, I basically tell everyone, I'm going to teach you all this stuff that we know, and we're going to explore these ideas. And then we're going to figure out how to look at it. And I mean, I haven't even figured this out yet, <laughs> but how to look at it. Um, how to look at dance also knowing that it just doesn't work for dance. And for exactly the reason that you're saying, like, if I do a pirouette, what is the goal of a pirouette? Like, I think there is a way of saying that there's a measurable goal for the pirouette. I, as an artist, resist <laughs> that is true. And, you know, and I think that we can't, there's a really, um, alluring opportunity to just kind of shove the dance movement into this motor learning perspective. And I think we have to avoid doing that. The problem is that I don't have another um, frame <laughs> built to look at it through. And I think, you know, so maybe, I mean, the only way I can think of this is that like, I am interested in balance. I think balance is really revealing. I feel like I've built some expertise in it. I feel like I understand it in some ways. There's a lot more to understand. I feel like I'm experimenting with different ways of measuring it that are revealing meaningful things. Um, and I feel like that's kind of, we kind of have to have lots of different people collaborating to slice it up in that way. So if you're interested in like looking at movement smoothness, that's really interesting. Um, you know, movement initiation, movement, you know, sort of beginnings and endings, like that's really fascinating. And there's a lot to learn there. And there's a lot to learn about how to learn that. And so, you know, if you think we can slice it all up like this, I think like a prism, like we can slice all of it up, keep the movement at the center, 
slice the ways of looking and then see what happens when we try to reintegrate all of these things. Like, what does that mean? Um, yeah, I, I, that's my only suggestion that is something that I think about a lot. Well, great. Thank you. I have, I have so no much. other answer. <laughs> no, it, it's totally fine, you know, and like, I was thinking of it too, like, you know, in the dance for health perspective, right? Like a lot of our measurements right now end up being the clinical measurements of like the sit to stand or like, you know, um, step length or whatever, but like, how do we keep the art at the center? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and how do we keep the, the meaning of kind of like the dance form? Um, which I think is a constant like question for all of us in this field. And I, with that question, like wasn't expecting like a, you know, a black and white answer because there, there is no black and white answer. But I think what's um, really interesting, you know, about like the conversations that are happening and like the conversation on this podcast today is like, what is your perspective on it? Right. And how does your perspective kind of what you were talking about with the prism, like, integrate into that full conversation that that we're all having and that you know there's often room for a lot of us in this con in these conversations mm -hmm. right like you were just talking about like you know that you're looking at the the balance from that you know one perspective but like looking at smoothness of balance or like the you know all of these different there's there's many different ways for all of us to look at all of this you know and like it's all pieces right like you were saying that we all can kind of like contribute to this um, to this larger conversation. Yeah, I also think I mean two thoughts. One is that like if we're thinking if we're bringing art into it, <laughs> I mean not to, not to suggest that we ever like removed the art in the first place, but there's so many there's so many more stakeholders, and so this is where um, you know participant led or sort of more qualitative methodologies that I have not studied that I wouldn't practice. You know that's where these people get involved. That is, I'm looking at the body and the brain, but the body and the brain are, are in a person who is, you know, performing. And then also, of course, they're performing for an audience, like there's that. And then there's also this like nested in this larger question of like art in our culture, in our, in our communities, in our wider culture. And like that, you know, these things have to be taken into account. Do I write about these in, in journal articles? No, <laughs> right. But, but like, I, you know, I think that that's, we have to acknowledge that. Um, I said two things. The second one went right out of my mind. Hmm. Oh, dear. Well, in any case. No worries. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time today, Betsy. Um, I just really appreciate your expertise, your point of view, your experience, and your openness to kind of have these frank discussions. So, you know, um, just thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I don't know if you have like one last comment for, for the listeners or anything, but. No, thank you. I, I think, you know, this is, well, I don't know. It's like everybody's talked so much about collaboration. I, I'm always a little bit weary when people are like, yeah, collaboration, because it's actually really hard. <laughs> it is, it <laughs> you know, is. it takes a lot of effort, a lot of planning and a lot of work. Um, but this is really the place for it, that it's no one person should be the expert hero of all dance science and, and that, you know, we should, you, you need a stat, I took stats, I need a statistician, you know, <laughs> like we need all of the other parts of it. We need the people talking about community and culture. And, and, you know, my little plug, my tiny little window in is about technology and about the sort of, with the increasing potential democracy of these technologies, 
more people get involved. You know, I, I think keeping them in the lab space is also this sort of political statement that they're not accessible to different people who've been trained to think in different ways, who, you know, have a different sort of education, perhaps a different way in and like we need those people. So that's my hope for the future. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and thank you everyone for listening for today. On behalf of Ellie and myself and Greg and Elizabeth, I, Marissa Schaefer, want to say thank you to all of our listeners for joining us on this episode of Dancewell Podcast. Our intro soundscape was composed by the dynamic duo Brendan Berry and Dylan Ezzi, and dancer-designer Katie Dean crafted our visual image. If you like what you hear, we invite you to go and leave us a review, rate us, subscribe to our show, and share your favorite episodes with a friend. You can also view all of our episodes and learn more about this podcast by visiting our website at www.dancewellpodcast.com. If you have questions or want to get in touch, email us at dancewellpodcast at gmail.com. Bye.